This is Echo Zoe Radio, episode 46 for February 2012, with guest Bob DeWay on Bill Johnson, IHOP, and Ancient Heresies Reborn. Welcome to Echozoi Radio. I'm your host, Andy Olson, proprietor of Echozoi.com. Thanks for listening. This is episode 46 for February 2012. And this month, my guest is Bob DeWay. And our topic of discussion is Bill Johnson, IHOP, and Ancient Heresies Reborn. Much of the discussion focuses on the teachings of Bill Johnson, author of a book called When Heaven Invades Earth. The book espouses many teachings common to the New Apostolic Reformation and the International House of Prayer, a New Apostolic-affiliated church group based in Kansas City and led by Mike Bickle. Our discussion ties in especially well with the previous episodes I did with Sandy Simpson on the New Apostolic Reformation, which we did back in November, and was episode 43, and also with the episode immediately prior to that with Mike Abendroth on Sola Scriptura. You can find those both at echozoe.com slash 43 and echozoe.com slash 42. As you can probably tell, I'm currently getting over yet another cold. Uh, My apologies not only for my voice, but also Bob's, as he's dealing with uh, similar issues, and not only with a cold, but also with allergies. Before we get into my interview with Bob, I have this month's news and announcements. We're still waiting to hear back from the IRS on our 501c3 status. However, if you'd like to know what you can do to support EchoZoe, please check out echozoe.com slash support. There are several things listed there that you can do to help EchoZoe, such as prayer, uh, recommending the podcast and website to friends, or using our affiliate links when you shop online. Be sure to check out the EchoZoe store at echozoe.com slash store. Uh, There you'll find some CDs of popular past episodes, as well as a subscription option to have CDs of future episodes mailed to you or a loved one every month. This is a great gift idea for someone who does not do podcasting, but you know would enjoy hearing EchoZoe Radio. You can find EchoZoe on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ministries, all one word, or on Twitter at at EchoZoe. Sign up for email alerts to be notified when new episodes become available by visiting echozoe.com slash alerts. I'd love your feedback as well. See echozoe.com slash contact for our postal address or to send me an email. Finally, be sure to check out the show notes for this interview at echozoe.com slash 46 for an outline of the discussion, additional resources, and scriptures referenced. Now, here's my interview with Bob DeWay. Welcome, Bob. It's uh, great to have you back in the studio doing another show. It's great to be back. Yeah, it's been a while. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So uh, today what we're going to talk about really ties really well back with what I talked about with uh, Sandy Simpson back in November. And uh, when I had him on, we talked about the New Apostolic Reformation. We're going to kind of focus on more of a specific aspect of New Apostolic, and that is IHOP 
with uh, Mike Bickle and this uh, Bill Johnson. And um, we're going to base our discussion, for the most part, on two articles that you've written. One of them was CIC issue 107 with Mike Bickle in the International House of Prayer. And, uh, and then you've also got another article that you've written but not yet published on this Bill Johnson. And that article is actually a book review on his book called When Heaven Invades Earth. And I want to focus on the heresies, really. I guess that's what interests me is to get in and talk about these movements within the church or, or around the church that have heretical strains in them. I, I think it's very important to talk about heresy, and I, I am interested in touching on how ancient heresies are being applied in the church today. And I think your articles really uh, did a good job of, of drawing that out. So maybe you could kick us off a little bit with who Bill Johnson is and, and what this book is all about. Bill Johnson is from Redding, California, and for several years I got contacts from people asking if I'd write about it or research it. And I actually got a call just a couple of days ago from a brother from Redding who goes to an Orthodox church, not Greek Orthodox, but one that teaches the true doctrine of Christ. And he is going to be out here, but he said that this thing is huge in Redding, California, and it's Bill Johnson and his ideas that are very similar to IHOP in Kansas City. Now, this is Bill, like as in short for William, not Phil as in no, Philip. No, Bill. <laughs> Bill. Starts with a B. Yeah. And his subtitle says here, as I look at the book cover, A Practical Guide to a Life of Miracles. Mm-hmm. Well, as soon as I saw that, we have a problem here. Because you can't create miracles by learning a technique and applying it. If you do that, you don't even have a biblical definition of what a miracle is. A miracle is a work of God, not something that's initiated by some Gnostic-type human who understands the right principles. And they actually portray Jesus as someone who could do miracles only because at least during his earthly ministry, because he laid aside his divinity. That's another heresy. He could only do these because he knew what to do. and we He learned learned, the formula. Yeah, he learned the formula. And once we learn that same set of spiritual laws, processes, ideas, faith, whatever it is that the false teachers say we got to have to do miracles, then we can actually do greater miracles than Jesus. And another part of this heresy that's very similar to the latter rain roots of IHOP in Kansas City is the idea that there's going to be an Elijah generation, which is their code for elitism and pietism and some higher order Christian who's going to show up at the end of the age. And when they do show up, they're going to be greater than any generation of Christians that ever existed before, and they're going to do greater miracles than Jesus. Well, let me read something right out of my article here. The basic premise is that God always wants to do abundant and remarkable miracles, but is kept from doing so by the fear and unbelief of the church. That's Bill Johnson's idea and these other teachers. God awaits the arrival of specially anointed and enlightened Christians who will make it possible for him to bring 
at long last, an invasion of heaven to earth before the return to Christ. So all this is awaiting some elite Christians who have secrets and knowledge and anointing that all the Christians before really didn't have. And this is going to usher in miracles greater than any that Jesus ever did. I I just, I guess the, the more I learn about sound biblical teaching, the more it, one, frustrates and sometimes angers me to hear this kind of heresy. But on the other hand, it confuses me. Like, how could you actually believe this stuff? Like, if if God is waiting for some super faithful person to come along to do his work, I mean, how does that work? I mean, God's the one that created this person in the first place. It kind of makes God impotent, and it makes this, you know, quote-unquote believer the, the potent one, the powerful yeah, one. Plus, plus you have a frustrated God who sits in heaven waiting us to figure something out. Well, who's God in that situation? Well, that's a good question. Let me read something else here that I wrote about. It's called the Kenosis Doctrine. Have you heard of that? I have. Well, kenosis means to be emptied or emptying. And so it's based on a misinterpretation of Philippians 2. And the kenosis doctrine says that Jesus actually emptied himself of deity. So that when he was walking the earth during his earthly ministry, Jesus was a mere man and not God. And that has been around for a while. That's very common amongst false teachers and denials of the deity of Christ. They say, well, we believe in the deity of Christ. I call that a denial because deity cannot be compromised, laid aside, gained, lost. It either is or it is not. Right. And so my article gets into that issue of the Kenosis Doctrine and the fact that it's equivocating on the whole concept of deity. What sort of deity comes into existence? That's a heresy. Yeah. I like to define my terms a little bit, but when we're we're talking about heresies, and I've said this before, but I define heresy as anything that denies or mischaracterizes either the person or works of Jesus Christ. So what's going on here is they are mischaracterizing the person of Jesus Christ by denying effectively denying his deity. Yeah, although they say they don't. Although they say they don't, right. Okay, but they don't even understand the doctrine of deity and what that actually means. And then, to compound the error, they make people ignorant by telling them that if they study, they're going to quench the spirit. So you have an anti-scholastic bias that keeps people in the dark because if they actually studied theology, they'd understand the definition of deity non-contingent eternal existence, they'd know that. Well, you can't know that because that's just intellectual knowledge, head knowledge, ideas of man, and what we follow is the anointing. I don't know if you've heard that before. Yeah, well, I mean, it's important that we understand that it's not just important to understand doctrine, but we got to put that into practice. we got to have correct implication and application in our own lives, but that doesn't mean that we get rid of the doctrine and only go for the application, and that's what really what he's doing here. Well, application comes from some truth that we know to be true from Scripture, 
that we believe, that we obey, that we apply. But the concept that deity can be laid aside by Jesus because he decided not to be God and then regained because he decided to be God again is effectively denying the deity of Christ. So the application is that's heresy. If you hear somebody preaching it, run. That's my application. Yeah. Well, I just keep coming back in my head that, you know, I, I, I spoke with Justin Peters a couple times a while back and, I think the last time was about uh, two years ago. And he put it so succinctly. If there was ever a time when Jesus was not God, then he was never God to begin with. Yeah, that's what I'm saying too. Exactly. And Justin Peters has a theological education. (laughs) But that's a bad thing because it'll make you powerless. It'll make you lacking the power of the Spirit. In fact, I'm going to quote myself, okay? Here's what I wrote. He resorts to an often misused passage that promotes his anti-scholastic bias. This is Bill Johnson. A powerless word, says Johnson, is the letter, not the spirit. And we all know the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Of course, that's from 2 Corinthians 3.6. And so now we're stuck with Gnosticism, subjectivism, mysticism, because if we believe what the Bible says... That'll kill us if we think the Bible's literal. But if we have some sort of anointing that gives us ideas in our mind that are not logically attached to the text, then that's going to give us life. And really, it's absurd. Because what does it mean when the Ten Commandments say, Thou shalt not steal? You can't really allegorize that. Well, you could. But it wouldn't be God's word. What if you took thou shalt not steal and said this? Thou shalt not steal unless you need something worse than the guy who already owns it. Well, that would be a false application because it's still stealing. And it's a loophole that doesn't really exist. So on something simple, they'd say, well, yeah, just don't steal. But the whole thing is undermining hermeneutics theology, study, the meaning of Scripture, the application of Scripture, sola scriptura, the Reformation doctrine of Scripture alone. Bill Johnson turns all of those things on their head in order to have this revival that does greater miracles than Jesus ever did, which never really happens. And that's, I'm glad you mentioned sola scriptura because that's something I also want to point people back to is I had an excellent discussion with Mike Abendroth back in October on Sola Scriptura. That was episode 42, um, just before I talked to Sandy Simpson. And that's really a common thread. Sola Scriptura came about as a response to the Catholic Church and the Reformation. But we really see a lot today where people are finding new ways to abandon Sola Scriptura which these these guys, uh, you know, Bill Johnson and, and the New Apostolic and IHOP and whatnot are doing the same thing, just in different ways. And and it's it's important to understand that and to to see that uh, sola scriptura doesn't just apply to the Catholic Church and the Pope and the Vatican and whatnot. It applies in any area where we try to draw spiritual authority outside of the Scripture. Yeah, and outside of things that can be validly derived from Scripture. So we say, well, we believe the Bible is the Word of God, 
but his meaning is determined by certain higher-order elite pietistic Christians who have a better understanding of it through subjective means, through mysticism, through personal revelations, through whatever they tout that keeps the Bible from being understood by people that need to understand it in order to apply it. And then you become dependent on the false teacher because you're not really dependent on the Scripture. Well, it it breaks my heart because I, I think back to Jesus' words when he talked about how we know him through the Scripture, that even the Old Testament, he said the, the volume of the book speaks of him. It says that in Hebrews, yes. So, I mean, how, how do we really get, if Jesus says go to the Scriptures to know him, how do these guys get away with saying, you know, the scriptures aren't really that important. You don't want to get bogged down in scriptures. You're just going to be, you know, headstrong and spiritually weak or whatnot. That's exactly what happens. So you either end up dependent on something like Watchtower Society to interpret it for you or the teaching magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church to tell you what it means or these revivalists who claim that they have greater authority and power than Jesus ever had because he laid aside his divinity. I was explaining this. Let's make it real practical. Many years ago, I was talking to someone who was involved in this movement, or a similar one, and I warned him, and I said, well, Jesus didn't lay aside his divinity. And the person said, of course he did. He had to. Why? Because otherwise it wouldn't be fair. What wouldn't be fair? Well, then he could do miracles because he was God that we can't do, so we have to get here on even footing. And so this particular pastor viewed life as a contest to see who could do the most and best miracles, and if Jesus was God, then he had an unfair advantage over the rest of us. That's a complete misunderstanding of Jesus' whole purpose of of, uh, the Incarnation. Well, what about the miracles in his life? What did they prove? They proved his divinity. They proved that he was the one that could save us from our sins. Exactly. But that, according to this theology, if Jesus does miracles, we believe it proves his divinity and his uniqueness. They don't want that. They want him, through this kenosis doctrine, they lay aside these things. Jesus lay aside his deity. Now, if we'd have enough faith, we could do everything Jesus did and even more. So it's not just denying, as I said before, it's not just denying the person of Christ through his divinity. It's denying the works of Christ as well. That they're unique, yes. Right. The Bible makes that claim. Those unique works are important because that's what eventually gets us saved at the cross. Well, who else predicted his own resurrection from the dead? Who else lived a sinless life? Who else walked on water, calmed the storm, cast out demons from somebody so demonized as gathering demoniac that he was chained in a cemetery and the guy comes to his right mind and Jesus says stay behind and tell your people here Gentiles about this people are claiming these things but they don't happen they say they do they don't and these laughing revivals or whatever is going on are not greater miracles than Jesus They're not even teaching solid Christian doctrine. Now, let's go back a little bit to that passage, the letter kills and the Spirit gives life. It is in the Bible. How does the letter kill? What is it that kills us? The law. Yeah, the law that's not 
allowed to point to Christ. Moses wrote of me. They reject Christ, cling to the law, and so they won't believe in him to whom the law pointed, the schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. So the letter kills, and here's what I said about this from Romans 7. Paul explains how the law kills in Romans 7, 5, and 6. It kills because of our sinful passions that it exposes, not because it is studied for what it means. Studying the Bible will not kill you unless you do not believe it. Another pastor, and I'm going back to the late 80s, early 90s here, and some of my experiences at pastor's meetings, said, well, I used to be Lutheran, but we recited creeds, and that was dead. That was the letter that kills. Well, a creed is not scripture, but it's sound doctrine. Right. I said, so you, when you recited the creed, did it talk about Christ and the resurrection and the truths of the Bible? Yes. Well, how did that kill you? Well, it just did. I needed the Spirit. Okay. Did you believe that Jesus Christ was literally raised from the dead bodily and bodily ascended into heaven? Did you believe that? Well, no. I said, well, what killed you was unbelief. (laughs) Belief in the resurrection of Christ won't kill you, but unbelief will. You can cite a creed and not believe what it says, but if the creed itself, like the definition of Chalcedon, properly and accurately defines the person of Christ, you won't die by believing that. The creed is an expression of Scripture, or it would have no authority. The church doesn't have authority beyond Scripture. So unbelief kills us. Faith in Christ as revealed in Scripture is a saving faith. If it involves you know, a robust faith of trust and belief in the truth, but believing in a Jesus whose divinity was laid aside, who suffered and was tortured by Satan as a mere man, as some of the Word of Faith people say, and who can do miracles only because of knowing some Gnostic principle, that's not faith as defined in the Scripture. And that faith in Jesus, who's not really the Christ of the Bible, will not save you. I really want to focus on that. You brought up Gnosticism, and I've brought it up in the past. We've talked about Gnosticism and Gnostic application in in modern uh, the modern church, and uh, you know, let's talk a little bit more about Gnosticism and, and how is how is this practice kind of a new Gnosticism? It goes back to some of the things Paul warned about in Corinthians and Colossians and so forth. Gnosis, Greek word for knowledge. People claim secret gnosis not revealed by any means that God ordained or any ordinary means that we have of knowing. And these enlightened ones, the Gnostics, have insight that ordinary people cannot achieve. And so that idea has never really gone away, and it rears its ugly head in today's theology. You know, I've I've said it before on occasion, the more I understand these false teachings and how people are bringing Gnosticism back into the church and some of these other false teachings, the more it seems analogous to the movie Star Wars in many ways that they seem to think that Christianity is kind of like the Jedi and that you've got to go into this pietistic Gnostic place where you get the special knowledge, you get the special powers 
that takes you to a new level. And so it ends up being that the average Christian ends up being kind of like, you know, in, in the Star Wars realm is kind of a low-level Jedi. And that the, the the people that are doing this teaching are the ones that end up being the Luke Skywalker or the Obi-Wan Kenobi, where they're the ones that are ascended into some higher being and, and can use this force, you know. And, and, and so God ends up being like this almost uh, panentheistic force. Mm-hmm rather than than a, a supernatural being. Yeah, that's panentheism is very popular. It's a New Age view of the universe we live in. God is in everything. We just need to become enlightened. And enlightenment is known by different sects and cults and what have you as being some process that they know that we don't know and that we need to get from them. And you end up with a man-centered, elitist type of Christianity is not really anything to do with what it says in the Bible. One time I wrote an article and said this, there are no extraordinary Christians, but being an ordinary Christian is an extraordinary thing. And so by denigrating, quote, ordinary Christians that aren't enlightened, they deny faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, the very solas of the Reformation. And you have some version of elite Christians that are better than the rest of us. And the Catholic Church has works of super irrigation. You've heard of that? Yeah. Well, why don't we define the term? Super irrigation means works above and beyond what's required of ordinary Christians. Okay. And so you join a monastery. And then you do various things in the monastery to try to achieve a higher order of spirituality. Well, that's Luke Skywalker going off to, you know, whatever that planet was to to study under Yoda. I mean, it's... Yes, gurus <laughs> for Christians, but we don't really believe in gurus. And, you know, I'm sorry to use this uh, secular example, but, you know, Star Wars really is um, is, is kind of a sci-fi uh story that is has buddhism weaved through it and it's really it's buddhistic uh, mm-hmm. theology or whatever but it's a good illustration to show where the error is that that's that's what we're not trying to be well let me quote bill johnson just to show how that where this goes and how it creates problems uh-huh. this is from page 76 of the book when heaven invades earth he says this Those who feel safe because of their intellectual grasp of scriptures enjoy a false sense of security. None of us have a full grasp of scripture, but we all have the Holy Spirit. He is our common denominator who will always lead us into truth. But to follow him, capital H-I-M, meaning the Holy Spirit, we must be willing to follow off the map to go beyond what we know. Hold on a second here. To go off the map, to go beyond what we know. Well, what exactly is beyond what we know? Beyond the Scripture. Yeah, and even if you just wanted to not talk about Scripture, just talk about ordinary things, what's beyond what we know? Well, there's things we don't know. But if the Holy Spirit leads us beyond what we know, what will we have when we get there? Some sort of gnosis, knowledge, that we couldn't have obtained by studying the Scripture. 
and the logical implications and applications of Scripture that are there, which are many, but the meaning of Scripture is determined by the Holy Spirit-inspired authors, not by the reader. And so here, Bill Johnson is saying that the reader, supposedly guided by the Spirit, goes off the map. Well, off the map ends up being the kenosis doctrine that Jesus laid aside his divinity, which by implication means that Jesus never really was God because divinity by definition is not gained and lost. It is. Jesus said, I am. He didn't say I was. Or I will be. Or I will be. I am. Before Abraham was, I am. That's found in John chapter 8. So... This is heresy. I don't care about gold dust floating from the sky, as they say, or angel orbs, or whatever they talk about in these meetings. It's heresy. It's damnable heresy. It's a denial of the deity of Christ. And if Jesus can achieve deity after he had laid it aside, then what keeps us from achieving deity? Well, now you're in uh, almost Mormon doctrine. You bet. (laughs) It's just another version of attacking the true uniqueness of Christ. Is Christ unique, or is he one of many possible enlightened ones, including us? So off the map. Off the map is what gets us into trouble in all of life. Right. Going off label. Well, how would he say then, like, that we can... I mean, the scripture is pretty clear that we are supposed to uh, discern the spirits. We're supposed to 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 judge things, you know, the Bereans were more noble than these because they would search the scriptures to see if they were so. I mean, what are we supposed to, if we're not supposed to be on the map, how does he say that we keep things in check and make sure that we don't, you know, be so far off the map we're heading in the wrong direction entirely? He attributes that to the work of the Holy Spirit. But how do we know the spirit we're following is holy? Well, <laughs> we apply the objective test of spirits, that are laid out in 1 John 4, 1 through 5, but they don't do that. That's your answer. What's his answer? I mean, what? Well, you just keep going to the meetings. You could go sign up for their school of miracles or whatever they call it, the Bethel School. And so they appeal to young people who are not satisfied with their parents' evangelical Christianity or any other kind of Christianity, and they go have an experience under the guise of Christianity under the guise of the Holy Spirit, I heard a pastor one time who just came back from Toronto, this is a number of years ago, who said, well, they were standing in the line to get their food up in Toronto uh-huh. during this laughing revival, and there was this guy that was started to act like a turkey and gobble and strut around like a turkey. He said, wow, God was really at work. <laughs> Why would you think that? Because they're in a church, so anything that happens out of the ordinary must be from God, because only God would be in a church. Or a building rented by the church or wherever (laughs) they were. But that is naive. That's just parochialism. We're right because we're us, so anything that happens must be from God. Why test the spirits? How do you test spirits? Well, by 1 John 4, 1 through 5, any spirit that confesses Jesus Christ come in the flesh. That's our firewall against Gnosticism. The Gnostic Christ is not a Christ who came in the flesh. He only seemed to come in the flesh. And so if you don't have the Jesus who existed from all eternity as God with God and with God, who was born 
in the Incarnation through the Virgin Mary and lived a sinless life and did many miracles to prove his deity, not to prove he laid aside his deity, not to prove some Gnostic doctrine, who predicted his own resurrection from the dead, who was crucified and raised on the third day and bodily ascended into heaven, who's coming again to judge the living and the dead, that Christ came into flesh. The Gnostic Christ doesn't come into flesh. He's a docetic Christ who only seems to have a real body. And there's the test of spirits. And with great sorrow, I have to say that a lot of people follow those who fail the test. Now you just mentioned docetic. Let's... Only seems to have a body. See, the Christ spirit can show up anywhere. Many of these false avatars or Christs of the New Age claim to have enlightenment that they gained, and they're going to peddle that so you can gain it too. Maybe they have the Christ spirit, they say. Christ means anointed one. The Bible claims there's only one anointed one. There's the problem. The wrong Christ. I remember going to a meeting where the people had a panentheistic view. This was out to do some research. And they were wanting to bring everything under the skies of the emerging world that they believed they were in. And they wanted to use the Bible for it. And I said at one of the workshops, doesn't it warn us in Second Corinthians about another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel? If there is such a thing as another one, then how to identify between the true one and the false one? They were saying that kind of diversity is just the way it has to be. Well, then we don't know if we're following the right Christ or some imposter. Yep. That's uh, kind of bringing in the pluralism that we find ourselves in in our society today. It's very interesting, by the way. I don't know how many people you've talked to that actually believe these things, but I've talked to many pastors and people that are... Christians who believe in a mystical Christ. Uh-huh. And they say, well, the cognitive, cognitive is what you can know with your mind. The objective, the cognitive. I was accused of keeping people away from Christ by preaching the Christ of the Bible who came into flesh and warning people about mystical Christs. And But when they say this is just intellectual, if you ask, well, tell me something that wasn't intellectual. Well, I was at this meeting, and this happened to me, and then I knew I should do such and so, and I didn't really do it, and then I got in trouble with God. I said, how do you know how to do it, or what you're supposed to do? Well, it came into my mind. Well, what came into your mind, was it rational, in a sense of words that you could understand and it had defined meanings? Well, yes. Well, then you use the cognitive, too. And the difference is, in one case, it's a valid implication application of Scripture. In the other case, it's a subjective religious experience. So even the mystics and the enlightened ones end up with ideas in their mind only by some subjective means rather than an objective one. And that's the difference, and that's the difference between Gnosticism and biblical Christianity. And, you know, I almost feel apologetic in, in to, the, to my listeners because it seems like I kind of go over some of the same issues, maybe from different angles, but I go over some of the same issues time and time again. And 
it's really because as I grow in, in the podcast and in the ministry, I really have a burden for people to know the true Jesus, the real person and works of Christ. And so, I mean, that's really kind of become the uh, foundation of, of what I do and, and, and how I de- decide what to talk about is we're either going to talk about who Jesus is or we're going to talk about who some heretic says Jesus is and why they're wrong. And so this particular episode is is the latter. We're talking about the false teaching of Christ, but that's really what my burden is. I want to talk about either who Jesus is. We'll talk about a positive doctrine. You know, maybe we talk about the doctrines of grace, means of grace, uh, you know, the souls of the Reformation, whatnot. And then sometimes we talk about the negative side of things. Is you know, this is where we're we're seeing people go off the reservation and and where they're getting into trouble and off the map. Off the map. <laughs> it's not very often that they actually claim they're off the map like <laughs> does. But yeah, either way, the true thing. Christ is preached. We did preach Christ here, yep. who he is. Well, that's the, the silver lining in talking on the negative side of things is that inevitably you got to talk about the truth. You got to, you know, we get the opportunity even in that to talk about who Christ really is and, and what he really did. Well, let me read something from this Bill Johnson. Reaction to air usually produces air. Okay, so uh, what does that mean? Here's what I said about that. If this is true, why did Paul write Galatians, Colossians? Why is Hebrews in the Bible? Yeah. In fact, most of the New Testament teaches the doctrine of Christ, warns against other Christs, teaches the f- sufficiency of Christ. This whole idea the reaction to air produces air? No. Paul's reaction to air produced the orthodox doctrine inspired by the Holy Spirit that we have in the Bible. Uh-huh. Positive and negative are not really very helpful categories. It seems negative to warn people that there's a real hell, but it's very positive if it's true for you to know that. Sincerity doesn't save people. I heard an old preacher once when I was a new Christian tell a story about being on a train going through Canada back when trains were a major mode of transportation. And there was a fellow on the train who wanted to get off at a certain stop and asked another fellow, when we get to such and so stop, please tell me so that I know that's where I should get off. And sure, well, they stopped in the middle of the winter, and he got off, and the train left, and it turns out he was in the middle of nowhere at a, at a stop that was simply for refueling or whatever they may have needed, oh, no. and he died there. Well, there was nothing wrong with the motives of the person. He thought that was the right stop, but it wasn't. So maybe the people that are universalists really do think that all roads lead to God and so on. Maybe Bill Johnson from Redding, California, really does believe that Jesus' deity was laid aside and he was an ordinary man and that we can do what Jesus did if we learn the secret. I don't doubt somebody's motives or their sincerity, but falsehood will destroy us spiritually. And so the most positive thing you can do is warn people that this is going to lead them to the shipwreck of their faith. Well, that's kind of a common thread with with you know we hear it all the time with heretics is that they they tend to be some of the nicest people you'll ever meet and I you know I don't know anything I don't know the first thing about Bill Johnson 
But I would assume that, you know, just based on what I know of, yeah, oh, okay, there's his picture, I guess. That's the first time I've ever He's seen a grandfather like me. Grandfather, fifth generation pastor with a rich heritage in the Holy Spirit, huh? That's great. Well, yeah, well, I would assume that he's a, a nice guy. I mean, I would just—he looks like he's probably a very pleasant person. Well, I would pray that he would come to know that Christ is the eternal God, yeah, and not someone whose deity can be compromised in any way, shape, or form. And that off the map is where you don't want to go. It says in the Bible that he that corrects a sinner who strays from the truth covers a multitude of sins. Well, love covers a multitude of sins. It's loving to warn people that where they're going is leading to destruction. And this whole Elijah generation, elitism, subjectivism, greater miracles than Jesus, Gnosticism, wherever this is going, is not good. And our concern is that people will be snatched out of that and come to the five solos of the Reformation, Christ alone, but the formal principle is scripture alone. Because without that, how do you establish Christ alone and grace alone and faith alone and the glory of God alone? Yep. Well, before time gets too far away from us, and I want to touch on the other heresies that you picked up on with this teaching. Namely, you know, we talked about Gnosticism. And you mentioned elitism. I want to talk about elitism. Also, fideism and pietism, but let's let's start with elitism. Elitism would be the idea that there are certain Christians that are better than other Christians because they have some insight, experience, lifestyle, whatever it is that they follow. That's that Star Wars analogy we used earlier. Well, it could be a monastery. Well, that was a nice little pause, and, and uh, as you can hear in my voice, I'm fighting a tail end of a cold, and Bob, Bob as well, and so we are gonna get a cough drop. Be thankful for medication, and thankful for uh, fisherman's friends. <laughs> thankful for podcasts where you can go back later and edit out, so the world does not need to hear our our hacking and our nose blowing. Okay, back to elitism. <laughs> elitism tells us that there's some superior order of Christians that can be identified by a special secret knowledge, lifestyle, be it celibacy, living in a monastery, selling everything that you have, and moving somewhere. There's a lot of things that we actually could do if that's what we wanted to do, but if we're claiming that we're better Christians because we did that and everybody else didn't, that's elitism. Now, pietism, I use it in a way that not everybody does, and I wrote an article about pietism, but there's pietism and quietism. Pietism started out as a Lutheran idea not too long after the Reformation by some Lutherans who were objecting to creeds and ordinary Christianity that they considered to be dead. So generally, pietism is reacting to what's called dead orthodoxy. But what kills us is not orthodoxy, it's unbelief. So we need to urge people to believe what the Bible says, to understand what the Bible says first, then believe it and act on it, 
and to adhere to the five solas of the Reformation. That's what all Christians need to do. That's a biblical concept. I believe that Christ alone, grace alone, to the glory of God alone, and so on, are biblical ideas, not just Reformation ideas. Uh Pietism says that that's inadequate, and that there's a better kind of Christian. We either had an experience or a higher order way of living than is required of other Christians, and the Bible doesn't teach that. I've heard so many of these. I've never once heard somebody say this. There's an elite version of Christianity that very few people know about, and that if you adhere to it, you're going to be way better than all the other Christians. But unfortunately, that's not me. They always posit that they're in the higher category, and you aren't. But if you join their group, there's hope that you can achieve that status. Uh, Fideism, what, what is Fideism? Fideism says that faith is its own justification and doesn't need to be propped up by objective truth that can be discerned by studying Scripture. I remember sitting in a seminary class, and there was a young man who was espousing what I considered Fideism, and I said something. I said, well, that's Fideism, and you shouldn't be believing that. That just doesn't work. You can believe anything. How do you know that your faith is not inadequate? How do you know somebody else is the right Fideist? And later I felt bad because I rebuked him in front of the whole class, and I wasn't a teacher. I was just another student. So I went and apologized for doing that. I should have done it after class, I said. And he said, well, you're right. I am a Fideist. He didn't claim to be one, but I correctly identified that's what he was. Fideism makes faith its own justification. So it's not the object of our faith, it's the faith itself. Faith itself is all you need. It doesn't need concrete, objective facts to be based on. Uh, Okay. So we have a little bit of time left. And uh, Earlier I brought up panentheism. And you've done some research into the subject of panentheism and how it's coming into the church and, you know, people don't quite, it's subtle, people don't understand it. Let's talk a little bit about panentheism. I think it's kind of an important topic to... Yes, it confuses a lot of people. And many Christians believe that the biblical concept of omnipresence, that God is everywhere, implies panentheism. And here's how we tend to think. If God is everywhere then isn't he in everything? Well, we're interpreting that in a wrong way. That God is everywhere is a spatial idea. In other words, you can't go somewhere where God is not. In, in panentheism, is an ontological idea or a statement about the nature of reality. And so, therefore, to say God is in everything is to say that the divine essence and being is infused within the creation, and it makes it difficult, if not impossible, to distinguish between the creator and the created. And that's a very popular theology. Now, pantheism, which most of our older apologists are dealing with, but it's kind of a moot point, in my opinion, because panentheism is far more popular, says that God is everything, and that all categories are an illusion. And then ultimately everything gets drawn back into God, and then there's just this one reality, God. But panentheism is really... It's easy to confuse the two, I think. 
It's it they is. sound alike, and they, I mean, not only the words pantheism, panentheism sound similar, but the principles sound similar. I was looking through some old articles just yesterday. I noticed in 1994, there was a Critical Issues Commentary article warning about New Age miracles. Now, that's a long time ago now, 1994. That's 20 years ago. And I quoted a fellow by the name of David Ray Griffin, who's now more famous as a New Ager, promoting post-modernity and panentheism. This was in 94, and the claim that I made in 94 was that if miracles can be learned and done by some sort of a method, they're not miracles. They're natural events. But that's panentheism. God is in everything. It's easier to... It's the formulaic, then. Yeah, it's it's easier to, to... sell that idea than the idea that everything that we see is an illusion. Panentheism fools a lot of Christians. The emergent church movement, in its theological essence, is panentheistic. And having talked to a couple of their leaders, they don't necessarily even deny that. Well, I said at the beginning, you know, we've really talked very heavily on uh, this Bill Johnson. And, and I did say at the beginning that I wanted to talk about IHOP as well. And and I see you brought that article as well. Let's talk just, we probably have about 10 to 15 minutes left. Okay. You know, maybe 20 if we push it. But let's talk a little bit about the IHOP connection. And first of all, what is what is the connection between Bill Johnson and IHOP, the International House of Prayer in Kansas City? Well, the connection is a similar source in latter rain theology, similar target of their ministries, which is young people, and the elitism. They talked about the Elijah generation targeting young people. I don't know if we've talked about that yet. I was called by a man some years ago whose son had been gone down to Kansas City to go through one of the schools down there of prophetic ministry or whatever it's called, International House of Prayer. They claimed to have gotten a revelation a long time ago that if they'd pray 24 hours a day, God would come down and some grand thing is going to happen. So conceptually, you have the same idea, that there's going to be some elite Christians that at the end of the age are going to be manifested. The manifested sons of God was the old idea. That's not all Christians, just certain ones, and it won't happen beyond history. It happens in history. And it only happens because of enlightenment of certain people who believe the doctrines of Mike Bickle or Bill Johnson or somebody else like that. Well, I noticed when I was doing my, I did a little bit of Google searching on Bill Johnson you know, when we were kind of deciding what to talk about today. And, and I noticed that he has spoken at quite a few, it looked like, uh, conferences that IHOP has hosted. And I guess the confusion I came into was, how strong is his tie to IHOP? Is he like like a vice president of IHOP, or is he like a friend of IHOP? Or has he got a satellite church of IHOP? Uh, you know, I think that it's not formal, but just informal. Okay. Now IHOP has this idea of the bridal paradigm. Have you heard of that? Yeah, you know, um, that's kind of big in that, isn't it? It's this this whole Song of Solomon aspect of. Yeah, you take the bridal thing and take it to its illogical conclusion, and you end up sort of a sensual Jesus 
who we have to have this bride of Christ thing in a more literal sense than the Bible says, and it needs to happen now. And right now they claim only some people have the bridal paradigm, but once everybody gets that, or most of the church does, then they'll be ready to defeat Antichrist during the Great Tribulation. So the Elijah company of the latter reign now is tied to this idea of a bridal paradigm. What a web. It is. And it all comes back to this elitism. And being a sinner saved by grace, which we used to talk about in old-time gospel music, is somewhat ridiculed because then you're just caving into mediocrity, or so they say. Why consider yourself a sinner saved by grace? Why be limited by what the Scripture actually says when you could have a higher order revelation? I was warned about all these things in Bible college in the early 70s. Several of my teachers were around when the latter rain came on the scene. And they knew what would happen if you embrace these latter-day apostles and prophets, and they warned us against it. But now it seems like the defenses are down and people are being drawn into these things. Yeah, it seems like a, you know, a subject that I've had on my mind for, for quite, you know, almost since the beginning. Someday I need to specifically talk about, we've talked about it a little bit, you know, peripherally, but specifically talk about the idea of an apostle and a prophet and what those offices were, who they applied to, what were the criteria. And then from there, you know, you, you had another article that you were preparing uh, for CIC that um, you've decided to shelf, but it was really good talking about prophecy and whatnot and, you know, what was the job of a prophet, who was a prophet, what was the purpose of prophecy and stuff, and uh, all great subjects to talk about. And as you kind of start to understand that, you know, all this other stuff starts to make sense, and it, it really yeah. it falls into place. Uh, I don't know when I'll get to it, but someday we got to talk about that. Yes, and Sola Scriptura needs to be defended because so-called Protestants aren't protesting anymore, and they don't believe in Sola Scriptura, which is Scripture alone. They don't believe in that. They believe that there's plenty of material beyond Scripture that we need to be full-blown, full-orbed Christians the way God intended, and we're limiting ourselves to Scripture alone. They actually say... The Bible doesn't teach Scripture alone, so why can we teach it? It's self-refuting. So I intend to write on that here soon. By the way, the Bible does talk about the faith once for all delivered to the saints. What does that mean? Well, Scripture alone, not something that's going to more to come. Well, I don't know where else to go with the discussion. I think we've covered a lot of ground, and I think it's uh, it's been a little bit disorganized. You know, or l- less organized than than maybe a typical discussion we have is, but yet still, still. You got some time left there. I do. Is there something else you want to cover? Well, I have a section in that article about IHOP that has to do with deeper life. Yeah, deeper life is very popular amongst orthodox, even Orthodox Christians, not meaning Greek Orthodox, but ones that believe the truth. Right. Is that there's some secret to the deeper life that certain people have discovered? and that we should have deeper life. Well, on one regard, that's true. We want to have a more vital, vibrant, alive faith that motivates us, but there's no secret. 
is revealed, okay? So whatever God does say in the Bible to us as Christians is not a deeper life secret. It's what's been revealed all along. And you can't just say all of church history is a failure up to now. We've got the secret. And the secret to the deeper life always be, excuse me, becomes something that gets you in trouble, in my opinion. Have you ever heard that, deeper life? Yeah, and it seems like kind of a, a common thread through so many false teachings. Is Thank you for inviting me to be on your radio show. Yeah, you know, I, it was, um, it's been a while, and it's, it's, it's been great having you back. Um, I don't know if people, some people might be familiar with what has gone on in the last uh, year and a half, two years and stuff, but, um, you know, it's good to see you back in the CIC and, and, and working on articles and possibly doing radio again. And it's it's been good to see, you know, you've been through some hard times in the last year and a half and stuff, but uh, it's good to see that you're coming through it and, and getting stronger again. And uh, Thank you. Uh, we just had a I, – I missed it. I was sick last weekend and didn't, didn't make it to church, but they just had a meeting and – talked about CIC and how they're starting back up again. And yeah, we're working on an article right now about this Ann Vos camp. So very well received. It's good to good to see that that's uh that ministry is starting back up again. Well, it's very humbling to realize that we need God or we're all going to fall on our faces. Yeah. And God does restore true Christians and he sanctifies us. And the real sign is if we come back if we, whatever failures we have in our lives, we never want to go away from the faith once for, once for all delivered to the saints and to cleave to him and to ask God to bring deliverance and healing. That's a real life example of that perseverance of the saints that, that we teach in uh, Reformed Doctrine. Yes, and where else are we going to go? Right. So it's great to have you. And uh, I uh, I enjoyed this discussion. I, I look forward to doing more in the future. And I... Uh, I'm not sure what your plans are with this article that we just kind of went through that's not yet published, but I'd like to publish it, you know, once you get it finished, you know, if it's sure ready to go for CIC, even if you don't put it there, I'd like to put it on Echo Zoe. I will definitely at the very minimum link to uh, issue 107 where you talked about Mike, Mike Bickle and the International House of Prayer, something that we that didn't touch on quite as much as I had hoped to. Uh, that's okay. That's you know we we covered the important parts that I wanted to hit on, but um, I will link to that and uh, see how things go in the future. It's, well, thank you so much for having me on your show. It's an honor to me. My pleasure, and it's uh, you know I, I like to say it's solely Dale Gloria to the glory of God. You know, <laughs> Amen to that. That wraps up episode forty six. Thanks again for listening. Remember to check out echozoe.com slash 46 for show notes, including an outline of what you just heard, as well as scriptures referenced and additional resources. Thanks again for listening, and Lord willing, I'll be back in March for another episode of Echo Zoe Radio.